Pastor Joel mentioned that we have uh, 13 babies born here in the last four months, which is great. We are averaging more than 175 kids every week under the age of 12 upstairs, which is fantastic. I remember when I was in kids' church, one of the songs that we would sing pretty regularly was This Little Light of Mine. And I like y'all, so I'm not going to sing it for you, but it goes like this if you're not familiar with it. This Little Light of Mine, I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine. And we hear about these great stories about what David would just mention with the 50-50 of what's going over to Pakistan and what's staying here in Edmonton. But it's amazing what happens when these missionaries are saying, hey, I'm going to let my light shine. And so what's happening in Pakistan is these landowners would have these brick kilns and somebody who would be low in the caste system would recognize, hey, if I work for them, I might be able to make some money for my family. And what would happen is as soon as they got sick or as soon as something bad happened, the owner would say, oh, I'll take care of you and heap on enormous debt that would take years to pay off. And so what happens is we're sending these Pakistani Christians to go into these places where these brick kilns are and help them learn how to read, help them to understand what's taking place and how amazing Jesus is and even supporting them to purchase brick kilns of their own. That's awesome. What happens is some of these Pakistanis end up coming to Edmonton or a couple other dozen different nations are coming to Edmonton, moving to a place like Millwoods where we have Paul and Rose Chug who regularly attend our church and are working at the Millwoods Friendship Center. We're teaching them English. Uh, We happen to be able to pay their rent and to financially support them to some degree. Um, Paul and Rose have all of these people into their home and so they get to be this wonderful light telling people from Middle Eastern countries, this is what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus, and this is what it looks like. Now, you hear stories like that and go, they're missionaries, they're professionals. What does that have to do with me? Well, over the last eight months, we've been going through one of our values as a church, inescapable mission. And back in September, we talked about, well, what does it mean to be on uh, an inescapable mission ourselves and to really share the good news of Jesus? And we talked about hospitality, and we talked about being a good neighbor, and we talked about how to invite people into our home. And so one of my friends in the church came up to me, uh, I forget if it was right before or right after, it was right after Thanksgiving, and he said, Dave, I've been inspired by these messages, and I invited two Ukrainian refugee families to have Thanksgiving dinner with me and my family. Awesome. That in and of itself brought a tear to my eye. But he didn't stop there. He said, I've, uh, I know these people are professionals in Ukraine, but they come here, they speak very little English. What if we had an opportunity to help them build their resumes and connect them with people in their occupation so that they could work and make more than just entry-level wage? And he's been able to do that. On top of that, he said to the leader of his organization, hey, um, I've been working with some Ukrainian families. I'm actually learning Ukrainian at night. What if we as an organization um, brought in a whole bunch of clothes and a whole bunch of small appliances and toys for these families, and let's hope to bless 40 Ukrainian refugee families. Amazing. And he's sitting among you right now because he recognizes God has given me a light. God has given me the ability to share this good news with others. And so here we are six months later. We've been talking about what it means to be a people of redemption. In January, we looked at hard questions. We looked at the gospel of Luke and this journey to Jerusalem. And here we are wrapping up a whole year on inescapable mission with a book that is transformed by love. So let's pray and ask God to guide us. Heavenly Father, as we think about the light that you have given to each and every one of us, may we be a people that are transformed by you. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work, that my words would fall down, and that your Spirit speaking to your people exactly what they need to hear this day 
would be radically changed. And God, may we be more and more in love with what you are doing in the world, in our lives, and in here in Southwest Edmonton. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to 1 John chapter 2. If you're brand new to church, should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, if you're watching online, certainly you can grab a phone or a tablet and follow along. Uh, thankfully, there's a table of contents because 1 John's a little tricky to find. If you have a physical Bible, go to the book of Revelation, the last book, and flip back just a couple of pages. You'll hit 1 John. If you've hit the Peters, you've gone too far. If, um, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. And as you're finding 1 John chapter 2, to allow me to set the scene a little bit. Jesus has 12 disciples. Uh, they have all died except for John. John is the last remaining apostle of Jesus Christ. He's approximately 90 years old, and he's basically acting like a regional minister. He has a number of house churches where people are meeting anywhere from about a dozen to about 50 people. Some churches might even be up to 100, and they're wondering, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And so he's told them, um, this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus has done, and they're following him, and they're excited about what Jesus is doing in their lives, and then suddenly these false teachers arrive. And these false teachers are saying things that they are completely um, opposed to, but they don't know what to do because these teachers are pretty good orators. They know how to public speak. They're convincing. They use good illustrations. And these people are saying to them, hey, don't worry about sin. It doesn't matter. Jesus died for that sin. But it wasn't Jesus' real body that died. He was actually more of a spirit. And then he kind of came back to life later. And they're saying these things, and these house churches are looking at John going, we don't know what to believe anymore. What are we supposed to do? And so John shows up, and you're going to see in this passage and in other passages that he's kind of speaking directly to the church, but also about the false teachers that are taking place. We're going to start with a command to love. If you enjoy following along word for word, I always preach from the ESV. This is 1 John chapter 2, picking up in verse 7. Beloved. I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. One of the funniest parts of scripture to me is in Second uh, Peter chapter 3. And he's writing to his audience and he says, you know, the Apostle Paul, he writes some words that are really difficult to understand. And I think, oh good, I'm not the only one. And so when I start my sermon prep, it's me, a Bible, and a notepad. No study Bible, no commentary. God, what are you saying to me? And I have a degree in theology. I think I know my Bible relatively well. And I look at these few verses and I write down on my notepad, I have no idea what this means. <laughs> You look at this and you go, well, what are you trying to say? It's not a commandment, but it is a commandment. It's a new commandment, but it's an old commandment. What does that mean? And through the context, you can tell it's probably something about love. So John wrote not just this first letter, but he wrote two other letters as well. He explains it a little bit more in 2 John, verses 5 and 6. And now, dear lady, it's a personification of the church. I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Now you hear that and you go, okay, that makes sense. The command is to love one another. Easier said than done, but at least we're on the right path. But why does he call it an old command and a new commandment? If you enjoy taking notes, the old commandment is because we've had it since Leviticus. 
So the Old Testament starts with um, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It has a few different words. Some people call it the Pentateuch. Some people call it the books of Moses or the Torah, the law. And you'll see on the one side of the screen that in Leviticus chapter 19, a God through Moses says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The problem is this is given only to the Israelites. And so when they think about neighbor, they think someone who looks like us, acts like us, talks like us. And so it's not only an old command, it's also a new commandment. The commandment is new because it's personified in Jesus. And back in February, we started a sermon series called Journey to Jerusalem. And we looked at about six chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And we started that sermon series by looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And do you remember how that parable begins? A Jew who's trying to honor God, looks at Jesus and says to him, well, who is my neighbor? And he expects the answer to be, well, someone who looks like you, talks like you, and acts like you. And Jesus blows the roof off the place. And he says, your neighbor is the person who is in need. Your neighbor is the person God places right in front of you. For John, this is really simple. Churches. Ellerslie. If you know the God of love, if you're going to embrace the God of love, then this command that has been old ever since the time of Moses and is new since the time of Jesus is true for you today. Love the person God has placed in front of you. Picking up in verse 9, you'll see the clue that John is combating the instruction of the false teachers. I believe it should be underlined on the screen behind me. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The false teachers are showing up, and they're saying, here's the good news of this false gospel. You can love Jesus and still hate your neighbor. And the people are going, well, this doesn't really make sense because when John was here, he was helping us start the church and he says that the command is all about love. And these false teachers would look at them and say, no, 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 no. You still worship the God of the Hebrews, right? When God brought your ancestors up out of Egypt and into the promised land. And they go, yeah, we've worshiped that God. Well, what happens when they got to the promised land? They go, they, they kicked out all the nations that were there. And the false teachers are saying, exactly. There was genocide. There was ethnic cleansing. There was a destruction of all the Canaanite people. And so these people in the church are trying to figure out, well, what, what does that mean, John? Because it kind of makes sense what they're saying, but it kind of makes sense what you're saying. What are we supposed to do? So allow me to take off this preaching hat for a minute, five to be exact, and to put on a teaching hat for a moment, because I think some of us run into this as well. I'm not looking for a show of hands, but how many of you have heard it said, well, the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and wrathful, and the God of the New Testament is full of love and grace. I don't break out the H word very often, but that is total heresy. That is not true at all. The author of Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But you might be sitting here and going, yeah, but... But what do we do with Joshua and Judges? What do we do with all of that war and what seemingly hatred and the anger that's taking place there? There's a passage of scripture that said 13 times in the Old Testament 
It said in the Torah, those first five books. It said in the history books. It said in the Psalms. It said in the prophets. And if you want all 13 verses, I'm happy to give it to you. I think there's four on the screen behind me. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And it said over and over and over again. But what do we do? And I don't know how often it comes up in casual conversation. I know it does for me, where friends of mine who aren't Christian will say something like, you believe in a supposedly loving God, but wasn't there a whole bunch of murder in the Old Testament? These five phases I did not come up with on my own. They're from Tremper Longman. I changed the words slightly, um, but you'll be able to follow along. If you want to take notes and I'm going too fast, you can always hop back on YouTube later. Phase one, this is the most troubling. God fights the flesh and blood enemies of Israel. So God is saying to the nation of Israel, you're going to go into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and you're going to kick out all the people that are there. And we read verses that say things like they murdered all the men, women, and children. And some people, depending on their backgrounds, depending on if they're pacifists, depending on how literal they take the Bible, they go, well, that can't actually be true. It is. Women and children were killed, and that is hard to deal with. So what took place? Genesis 15. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. This is when the Israelites were in Exodus. Uh, pardon me, were in Egypt throughout the book of Exodus. They've been slaves for 400 years. Now look at verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So the sin of the Amorites, so um, in Canaan you have the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, and many others besides. And they are given 400 years to repent, and they choose not to. And so after 400 years, God says, I'm going to bring you up out of Egypt. You're going to walk around uh, the desert for 40 years, and I'm going to take you into the promised land. And God fights against the nations um, in Canaan so that the Israelites might take place there. What happens next? Phase two, God fights against Israel. This is fascinating, and we read that, and we go, whoa, 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 that, that, that can't be right. But what happens is the Israelites think to themselves, we are God's chosen people. We have King David, and we have King Solomon. Yeah, the nation split into Israel in the north and Judah in the south, but we're God's chosen people. But God continues to send prophets and says, if you continue to act in this way, I am going to bring my judgments against you. And so Assyria comes and takes away the nation to the north, and Babylon comes and takes away the nation to the south. God is fighting against Israel. Phase three, God will come and fight Israel's oppressors. So now the nation of um, the superpower of Babylon thinks they can do whatever they want. They've conquered God's chosen people. And God says, no, 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 you do not get to destroy the Israelites. The book of Esther, a fascinating book, one I'd love to teach on one day, talks about this and shows how God shows up. That's the Old Testament. We arrive in the New Testament and we see this. Phase four, Jesus fights the spiritual powers and the authorities. And so no longer, and this is really important, no longer is the enemy flesh and blood, but the spiritual powers of this world. I always forget if it's verse 10 or verse 12, but Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the authorities of the spiritual world. Colossians chapter 2, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over the cross. Phase 5 has not yet happened. 
Jesus wins the final battle. So there's a phase uh, that takes place here, and it gets a little bit challenging, but the big idea is this. Teaching hat comes off, and the pastor hat comes back on. How does Jesus win? How does Jesus win? Jesus defeats these enemies. He conquers the grave. He defeats death. He gives us victory by his death on the cross and by triumphantly raising from the dead. And so John is writing to these churches and he's saying to them, understand this, Jesus Christ, who you have believed in, I know that because I've shared the gospel with you and you believed he has conquered the enemies by love. You are to do the same. You think hating your brother is going to bring glory to Jesus? It's not. I'm telling you, love one another. This is how people will know you are disciples of Jesus. After giving us the command to love, Jesus now, uh, John now turns to an assurance of love. If you have your phones in front of you and that's how um, you have the Bible with you, that's wonderful, but it's hard to tell that there's indentation there. So for the first time, to the best of my knowledge, in all of John's writing, he writes a poem. This is verses 12 to 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So the Apostle Paul writes about half of the Old Testament. Um, John writes the second most. He writes five books. He writes the Gospel of John. He writes the book of Revelation. And he writes these three letters that have his name ascribed to them. To the best of my knowledge, the only time he writes in poetry is right here for these three verses. Why do you write poetry? Husbands, when you write a little poem or a little note to your wife... Moms, maybe you write something to your kids. Why do you use poetry? It's to express this deep sense of love, isn't it? And so here's the audience that um, John is writing to. They're, um, They're not lost. They're not leaving the church. They're just confused. John, we don't know what it is we're supposed to do. These false teachers have come in. They've totally perverted our understanding of what the gospel is trying to do. And so John comes in, and in verse 11, he's a little bit harsh. He's a little bit blunt. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. But then you get to verse 12, and he changes his tone. And he helps him understand, I love you. God loves you. A couple months ago, I was in church with my two little boys, they're nine and seven, and we were sitting right over here. Normally, the seven-year-old doesn't come to adult church, Um, he goes to kids' church, but his mom was singing, and he wanted to hear mommy sing. And I thought, okay, no problem, you guys sit over here, I'm trying to get mentally prepared for the sermon that I'm about to preach. And so, my wife is singing on the platform, and all of a sudden, I hear smack! And I turn around, and my seven-year-old has punched his nine-year-old brother right in the face. And I said, why did you do that, Hawksley? And he goes, I thought it would be funny. And I said, it was funny. I mean, it was not, that was wrong, Hawksley. And so I pick him up like a suitcase. And you might know, like John the Apostle, he's like this regional minister. We also have a regional minister. And he loves me so much, he nudged his wife, pointed at me, and laughed. 
And so I'm pulling my son out into the um, foyer and I take him back out there and I'm holding him really tight and I'm whispering death threats into his ear. (laughs) I'm saying to him, Hawksley, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I didn't just say it once because he hears that all the time. It was this poetic moment where you say that over and over and over again. Understand, discipline might happen. It's not going to happen right now. It probably won't happen at all. Just relax and know you're loved. John has just given them discipline. What they need now is they need the assurance that we are loved. One pastor speaking on this passage, I thought did a beautiful job. He goes, I want you to know that I know that you really know that Jesus loves you. You notice if you have your um, Bibles in front of you, the first half of this poem, John says, I am writing to you. I am writing to you. I am writing to you. Meaning that from John's perspective, I know that you are loved because I was there. The second half of the passage, you'll notice it changes. It says, I write to you. I write to you. I write to you, which is from the reader's perspective as they receive the letter. But in both these cases, the emphasis is the same. A determination to bring the assurance of love to his readers. Verse 12, little children. Seven times in five chapters are we going to read this passage, uh, uh, this term. Again, remember, John is about 90 years old when he's writing. Everybody is a little kid. But it's this term of endearment. I love you so much. And I want you to know that God loves you so much. And that when you came to love Jesus, this command of love is now imprinted upon your life. For the fathers in the room, you'll notice the beginning of verses 13 and 14 are word for word identical. You know who Jesus is. Don't turn away from that. Young men, you've overcome the evil one. Don't go back to your old way of life. And to the kids in the room, you've made a choice to follow God. Continue in that footsteps. And so he covers every age. He covers the little kids. He covers the young men. He covers the fathers and the grandfathers. And he wants them to remember your first love. Remember what God has done for you. Embrace that and start showing that to the world around you. As we embrace the love of God, we shouldn't be surprised that he turns around and says, I command you to love we also are deeply encouraged in that we are assured of this love that he has given to us. Our passage wraps up this day with the impact of love. This is verses 15 and following. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So our culture has cute phrases that we use regularly. Things like love is love and live your own truth. But the scriptures are clear that our loves need to be reimagined. Five chapters in 1 John, if I counted correctly, 46 times does John mention love. And maybe I'm off by one or two. It's still a lot. But it's not always positive. And so let's start with the negative impact of love. This is verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, if you're reading that and something is niggling at your mind going, that doesn't, doesn't quite seem right. Something, something's missing there. Something's not connecting. 
And so John is writing in opposites over and over again. There is no gray area. There's light and darkness. There's life and death. There's love and hate. No gray area. What's one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture? John 3.16. The same author who wrote 1 John wrote the Gospel of John. And how does that go? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have, et- and have eternal life. And so how do you deal with this? How do you reconcile these two together? Like this. This verse is a warning against a devotion to the world over a devotion to God. This verse is um, a reminder that if we take good things and make them God things, our life is not going to be the way God has intended it to be. I'll say that again. If we take good things and make them God things, that's not the way God has intended our life to be. There is nothing wrong with loving your family. I hope you do. But if the love of family is higher than the love of God, it's backwards. There is nothing wrong with being healthy people who go to the gym or exercise regularly or or eat healthy. But if we go to the gym for an hour and can't find 10 minutes to spend time with God, our priorities are mixed up. Pick anything you want. Jobs are good, but not if they become God. Sex is good, but not if it becomes God. Money is good, but not if it becomes God. The Oilers playoffs are good, not if it becomes God. All of these things. And then he moves on to verse 16. And it's a little tricky to see it at first, but once I see it, you'll go, oh, that's fascinating. Verse 16 is actually an allusion, a reference to Adam and Eve in the garden. The desires of the flesh. Look at how great that piece of fruit on that tree looks. I bet you it's amazing. If I reached out and ate it, how bad could it actually be? You know, the snake said, I'll be like God. That seems like a pretty good deal for me. But it's not from the Father. It's from the world. There is much this world has to offer. There is much that this is good in this world. But if the good things become God things, we've missed the boat. And so John flips it around with verse 17, the last verse of our passage this morning. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you look at verses 15 and 16 in front of you, you'll notice it leads to death. But verse 17, it leads to life. The world is passing away. God offers you something better. Um, The world is temporary. Heaven is eternal. So when you stop and think about what we are doing and what we are offering our soul to, God is saying, I have something so much better for you. Something so much greater for you. The theologian Augustine of Hippo in preaching on this passage says this, hold fast to Christ for you he became temporal so that you might take part in eternity. Let's go back to the beginning of the message. You are the light of the world. People say, oh, isn't that backwards? Doesn't Jesus say I am the light? He says it both times. I am the light, John chapter nine. You are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. For 10 months, our theme as a church is inescapable mission. 
we've been talking about hospitality and we've been talking about inviting people into our lives and we've been talking about how to have casual conversations and how to weave God into that. And we talked about the story of Exodus and this incredible story of redemption, how God used an average person like me and you to share the good news of the gospel. Then in January, we did hard questions and we talked about science and sex and suffering and the hiddenness of God and how does God speak into all of those things. Then we looked at this journey to Jerusalem and Jesus is taking his disciples and going towards Jerusalem where he knows he's ultimately going to die. And we're wrapping up that whole idea, this whole thematic year with a book that talks about love more than any other book. So how do we take our light and let it shine? How are you going to show the love of God this week? What is that going to look like? For those of you who are like me and still happen to have cable TV, maybe you invite someone over and say, hey, come watch the Oilers game with me. It'll be great. And nobody's a Vegas fan. Don't even pretend that. <laughs> have some food, have some desserts, have a good time, cheer on the Oilers and have fun. Maybe it means that this is the week that you're going to bring coffee and donuts for the staff. You're just going to say, hey, staff, just wanted to bless you and be an encouragement to you. And so you take into your office some coffee, some donuts. And if somebody says, why do you do that? You choose what to say. My pastor told me to. I don't know. Maybe you say, it's because I really wanted to show you what the love of God looks like. Hey, I just wanted to be a blessing to you this week. Maybe this is the week with the weather getting as beautiful as it's going to get. You say, hey, coworker, why don't we go on a walk? We've got a half hour for lunch. Why don't we walk around the lake a couple of times or do whatever? Maybe this is the week that you say, I'm going to invite my coworker, my neighbor, my classmate out for a coffee, out for a meal, and I'm going to pick up the tab. And I'm just going to get to know them a little bit more. How are you going to show the love of God this week? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Jiho and worship team, I am sorry I forgot to invite you up. The worship team is going to come up as I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of 1 John. Thank you for this reminder over and over and over again that we are to be a people of love. And so God, forgive us where we have fallen short. Forgive us where our words or our actions do not show love to our family or our coworkers or our neighbors or the people we go to school with. And God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, fill us with that same Spirit who was embodied in Christ that we might show the world around us what love looks like, that you would be honored and glorified above all things, and the world might know how great and awesome you are. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name.